So we've made it through the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, and it's a natural stopping point. And 1 Corinthians is a long letter, so we are going to stop for a few weeks and do a short series on um, church governance and authority. Uh, the technical term for this is polity, related to the word politics or a political, identi political um, identity, political institution. Um, how are churches to be governed? How are decisions to be made? Where does authority lie? All of those types of things. We're going to talk, we're going to take a week and talk about pastors and elders and their role and authority. We're going to take a week and talk about the church, the, the body of the church and its role and authority. But before we do that, it seems necessary to just talk about the church and define what a church is before we're getting any deeper in this topic. How would God have us think about the church? Now, perhaps that sounds a little uh, academic to you, and you're not quite sure how beneficial that is. I mean, maybe if you were in Bible college or seminary, you would have a task to define the church. And so I want to begin by considering Jesus's heart towards the church. How does Jesus relate to, feel about, position himself towards the church. I want to begin by showing you that this is not just something that we need to understand rightly in our heads, but also impacts what we feel and love with our hearts and what we do with our lives and our bodies. So we're going to start in Ephesians 5, and we'll go on from there. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29, this, the immediate context here is about uh, husbands and wives, uh, but Paul cannot help himself uh, changing course, uh, going down a rabbit trail, if you will, about the church and Christ's love for the church. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Christ loves the church, and because of that love, he gives himself up to suffer and die for the church. Not because there is this group of people out there who are just so awesome and lovely and, and worthy and beautiful, and Christ says, well, I, I will give myself up for them. But no, Christ creates this group of people by dying for them and then goes on to make them lovely and attractive and beautiful. It doesn't say in this passage that Christ loved the world, although God does love the world in a different sense, for God so loved the world. But here it says that he loved the church, his people, or those who would become his people. And he does so in a way that, he, that is deep and significant and committing. He, he says he nourishes and cherishes the church, the kind of empathy and compassion and affection and desire and care that you would find in a healthy marriage that we are 
seek to do in our marriages and our close relationships. This is Christ's affection for and desire to nourish and care for his people. It goes on to say that he presents the church to himself in splendor. Now, if you think about it, that's kind of an interesting thing to say, because usually when you create something and you're proud of it, you present it to somebody else, right? That's what presenting something typically means. But here, Christ creates and beautifies and preserves the church to present it to himself. There's, because there's no one higher than Christ. There's no one more worthy than Christ to, to take pride in, to boast in, and delight in his work. And so the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of the church that Christ is working towards is the glory of Christ. We as the church, we as God's people, don't become puffed up and proud about, oh, look at how lovely we are. No. All the loveliness that is among us is the work of Christ. It shows even more Christ's work among the church. Now, this is incredible. For one, this should cause us great comfort and joy and hope if we belong to Christ's church, that this is his attitude, this is his commitment towards, this is his heart towards us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This should also cause us to live in grateful humility, that our belonging to Christ and belonging to his church is completely the work of Christ, is his doing. He established the church through his suffering, death, and resurrection out of love. And finally, this should cause us to do some self-reflection. If this is how Christ relates to and feels about the church, what is our heart and thoughts and feelings towards the church? How do we engage with the church? What do we think about the church? Now, obviously, in light of what we've just seen, these are important questions. But to answer them, we first have to ask, what is the church? What is the church? And there's probably not a better place to start than the Great Commission. Jesus' words at the end of his earthly life and ministry at the end of the book of Matthew. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, walking through the Great Commission. And here we find, if you want to turn there to Matthew 28, here we find both how God establishes a church and once the church is established, what a church is to do. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in context here, this is, like I said, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's risen from the dead. The great work of God to, to redeem a people for himself, to create a people cleansed and freed from their sin and empowered and motivated to live for God and love and worship and obey God. 
This has been finished. It's been accomplished. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And so from this point, with Jesus having all authority and power, as he says, he commissions his disciples. He gives them a charge. He, he tells us as his people what our work is to be going forward. What is the mission of God's people? And as he goes on, we, we find both what the mission is and how it's to be done. First, what is the mission? And the mission is to make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. A disciple in context is one who learns from and, and follows after and um, learns to become like a teacher or master. A disciple is willing to adjust their entire lives to follow the teaching and example of another. Uh, a disciple is one whom you would look at and you could increasingly see the resemblance of their teacher and their master. They, they become like those they follow. Now, it's easy to over, overlook this or easy to just read quickly through this because likely many of us have heard this many times, but this is quite a, quite a claim for Jesus to make. For Jesus to command his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations. He is assuming that all people from all nations ought to be his disciples. That he is the one teacher, the one example that everyone should follow. And the only way this makes sense, and the only way this isn't the height of folly and arrogance, is if Jesus is actually God. Is if Jesus had actually just risen from the dead, and as he said, all authority in heaven and earth was now his. And he was reigning over all of history. Which means that being a disciple of Jesus is not just about liking some of what he says, nodding our heads and agreeing with some of his teaching, thinking that he has some good things to say, thinking that he's a, an, a good example to follow after. No, being a, a disciple of this Jesus means submitting our whole lives, our whole wills, our desires and plans to him. As Jesus makes clear elsewhere, it is in a very real sense dying to ourself denying ourselves, that is, our former ambitions and priorities and plans, and letting Jesus completely rearrange, perhaps not too strongly, completely destroy our lives from what we thought was our lives. So how are these disciples to be made? Well, we're not left up to our own devices and creativity to figure this out, but Jesus tells us. First, he says, by baptizing them. So go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when we baptize, uh, uh, baptism is the, the affirmation of a credible confession of faith, a, a genuine seeming confession of faith. When we baptize someone, as we did a few weeks ago, we are saying, yes, this person has heard the true gospel, has responded in faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and seeks to be a disciple of Jesus. 
which means that there's actually a prior step to, to baptizing, right? There is the proclaiming the gospel needs to be preached. And as you go through the New Testament after the time of Jesus, you see this. The, the good news is proclaimed of Jesus being not just a great individual or teacher, but the Messiah, this kingly anointed one come from God who gave his life for our sins and rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell. The call is made after this proclamation of responding, of receiving him and being reconciled to God. And then those who receive this message are baptized. And in baptism, they are, they are proclaimed to the world, to the church, to themselves, that they are the people of God, that they belong to the people of God, the church. But that's not the end of the process. Baptism is not the end. Jesus is setting up a process for making disciples, not just converts. And so he goes on in Matthew 28 and says, teach them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, sometimes perhaps we, we imply after baptism that that's it. Have a nice life. Sometimes we might imply that well, now you have the Spirit, you don't really need anything else. You don't need teaching, you don't need the church, you don't need to grow and, and learn and mature as a disciple of Jesus. But Jesus says, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, it is implied that being a disciple is a lifelong process. That after hearing the gospel and responding in faith and being baptized, there would be this ongoing process of becoming more and more like your master your teacher, Jesus. That we would increasingly give witness to him. And so just to quickly summarize this real quick. Because Jesus came into the world, because of who Jesus is, and because of what he's done in his life, his death for sins, and his resurrection over the grave, there is this message to proclaim, this good news, there is a need for a call for response and receiving this, receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. There is baptism to be done and then continued teaching to build up disciples into maturity. So you see this process. Now the question is, what does this have to do with the church? And perhaps we might think, can't, can't this just be done on the individual level? Can't this preaching and baptizing and teaching just be done among individuals? Is there a need for the church? And don't even we see that in Acts. I mean, you can think of the example of Philip and the Ethiopian, if you're familiar with it, where Philip uh, preaches the gospel, explains God's word to the Ethiopian, baptizes him there on the spot, and then Philip apparently just disappears. Well, in our day, where we value individualism, perhaps above all else, and we distrust authority and distrust institutions, we tend to separate the commission of Christ and the church of Christ. We tend to think that the commission, going and making disciples, is necessary, but the church is kind of an optional add-on, one way to do that. So I want to show you that God's design is to keep these two things together. That God's design of the process of making disciples includes necessarily 
local, specific, visible outposts of God's people, what we call churches. And so we're going to jump around to a few other passages here. So consider a few things. First, the baptism that Jesus commands in the Great Commission connects you and I, not just vertically to Christ, but horizontally to his people. Baptism doesn't just connect us to Christ, but also to Christ's people. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. And what is this body? What is body here signifying? Well, if you go on, the passage says, Now you, the members of the church in Corinth, are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ that you are baptized into. Yes, we are baptized into Christ, but also into his body, his church. In baptism, we identify not just vertically with Christ, but also horizontally with his people. We, we are brought into a family, another biblical imagery for the church. We have, as I said earlier, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And just as in our own families, we don't always get to choose who those are. They are given to us. Second consideration in connecting the Great Commission to the church, Jesus and the other New Testament authors assume and even command that disciples will be gathering regularly with one another in what the Bible calls churches. Uh, we see this in various ways. Uh, for one, the word church used in Scripture actually means assembly or congregation. Now, sometimes it is used to refer to all believers across, across the world, across time and space. So it can mean that, but it's also used to refer to specific local visible churches like this that actually assemble, that actually know each other. We see the same thing in, in the many one another commands in Scripture. You know, there's like 60-something of them. Love one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Speak the truth to one another. Serve one another. These all imply in no uncertain terms that we are actually bumping up against other real-life-in-the-flesh disciples. It, it is impossible to to flesh out many of the commands in Scripture if you don't actually have other disciples who are regularly a part of your life. We also see that disciples are to gather together in the fact that God calls pastors, elders to lead specific local churches. In Acts 20, Paul says to the elders of the church in Corinth, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, is Paul telling the elders of the church in Corinth that their responsibility, that God is, the Holy Spirit has given them, is to every believer, every disciple all over the world? Of course not. But they do have a responsibility towards um, a call to know and love and serve the church there, in that place, personally, diligently. And then third, third consideration in connecting the Great Commission and the church together 
a church possesses some God-given authority to affirm credible confessions of faith, which is what we do in baptism. A church possesses some authority to affirm credible confessions of faith, which is what we do in baptism. To put this another way, when you have gatherings of believers coming together, teaching the true word of God and the true gospel, and beginning to baptize converts and proclaim them as disciples, you have a church. That is a church. And as such, it has a responsibility to oversee and assess credible, genuine-seeming confessions of faith. And I say some authority very intentionally because it is not an ultimate authority. And it's also not no authority at all. And we see this most clearly in several passages that speak of the back door, if you will, of the local church. That is, there are times when the church is to stop affirming someone as a genuine believer and actually remove them from its midst. And this process tells us something also about the front door, if you will, of the church. So let me just unpack those two passages real quick. Uh, one is in 1 Corinthians 5, which we're going to be in as soon as we get back into 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who is sleeping with his stepmother, with his father's wife. And he is unrepentant about this, and the church so far has done nothing about this, said nothing about this, as far as we can tell. And Paul says to the church very clearly, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Because by all accounts, in his unwillingness to acknowledge and repent of this very serious sin, he doesn't actually seem to be a believer doesn't actually seem to have God's Spirit in him, awakening him to say, I want to follow the Lord more than seek my sin. Similarly, in Matthew 18, and Matthew 18 is one of the two places that Jesus actually uses the word church, uh, Jesus gives a series of steps to take if a fellow disciple, a brother or sister, sins against you. You've perhaps heard this passage before. First, you go and speak with the brother or sister one-on-one. -on -one. Don't need to announce it. Don't need to go tell other people. Just go seek and reconcile with your brother and sister if, you've, if you feel that you've been sinned against. If that doesn't work, if there is no acknowledgement and, the, and there's clear, obvious sin at stake and there's no acknowledgement of it, Jesus says, bring one or two with you and seek to establish the testimony on, with a couple witnesses. If the individual doesn't respond to that, Jesus says the third step is to take the matter to the church, the assembly of believers in a particular location. And, and the purpose of this, the hope, is that with the weight of the church behind it, behind the call for repentance, the believer will turn and thus prove that their heart is, is softened by the gospel and that Jesus is still Lord. That's the goal, to be able to continue to affirm that this is a child of God. And that matters. And it should matter to us. But Jesus says if they do not heed the warning of the church, the church has the right and authority to make a proclamation of the individual. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile. And that is one who is outside the people of God. Now, 
there's a lot in here that we're not going to talk about today. We're not, we're not talking about church discipline and all of this. The, but the one thing, well, the couple things I want you to see is, one, it is assumed that the church gathers together and knows its members. That process cannot take place if the church doesn't actually gather together and know one another. Not that you know everyone and everything going on in the church, but that there is some knowledge within the church of others. You have relationship. But secondly, if the church has the right and authority to stop affirming someone as a true believer, to the best of their knowledge, again, it's not an ultimate authority, and the church can get things wrong. But if the church has some right and authority to stop affirming someone as a true believer, then they surely have the right and authority to begin affirming someone as a true believer in the first place, which is what we do in baptism. And which is what we continue to do through communion. Uh, this is why we offer an explanation when we take communion each week. Here is the gospel. Here is what communion is for. Uh, we don't want to just, we don't want to say you can believe what any gospel, follow any Jesus you want, and we'll just affirm you in that. And so these sacraments as they are often called, of baptism and communion, are the means by which the church both proclaims and guards the gospel. We, we baptize those who have heard the gospel and responded in faith. We, we celebrate communion together as a way to continue to affirm those who have received the true gospel. And, and just to be clear, and we're going to go here in a couple weeks, we don't think that this authority lies in the, the leadership of the church alone. We think the authority lies within the whole church, within the people of the church. That Je when Jesus says, bring the matter to the church, he doesn't just mean the leaders, he actually means the church. That the church itself possesses some authority over these things. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. So let me put it this way. In the Great Commission, we see the what and the how of God's purpose. Making disciples through preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing, and then continuing to teach them into maturity. What the rest of Scripture makes clear, however, is the where. That this process takes place within and from within the church. And I don't, I don't mean the church building, but from within the the people who belong to a specific local visible group of believers. In the church, the gospel is proclaimed both in, in gatherings like this and in, as you go out into your lives, in your workplaces and, and schools and neighborhoods and sports, community sports and all of that. Give witness to the gospel. A church baptizes converts affirms true confessions of faith. A church teaches those who have been baptized. There is a community that comes around you to encourage you and support you and, and all of this as you go on. Now, this isn't to say that none of this, none of this doesn't ever or can't happen outside of the church. Um, missionaries, 
go into places where there is no church, and they begin to proclaim the gospel. But in that, their goal is ultimately to establish a church, a group of believers that are gathering together and baptizing and teaching. You, of course, have conversations with your friends, and you try to speak to them about the gospel. If they are believers, you, you speak about God's Word together and what God is doing in your life. Perhaps you have a Bible study with friends. Perhaps you serve the homeless or provide food to the hungry, mentor people in various stages of life. These are all great things that Christians are to care about. But on their own, they don't fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, a homeless shelter isn't a church. A Bible study with friends isn't a church, unless you start baptizing converts and continuing to teach them, and, and then you become a church. Now, a church is the place where all the central pieces of disciple-making are brought together and held together. Okay. That's a lot of information. There's no quiz. But it is good information, biblical information. But I want to end by just considering what this means for our hearts, what this means for our lives, and not just attempting to pass a quiz about what the church is, as much as right information and doctrine is important. First of all, understand who you are. If you belong to Christ by faith, you are part of a family established through the blood-bought grace of God. Um, perhaps the most radical statement of this, Paul says, we are members one of another. Now, I spent some time reflecting on that this week, and I confess, I'm not totally sure what that means, that we are members one of another. And I think part of the difficulty is that we are so accustomed to understanding ourselves individually. And we are so accustomed to understanding ourselves simply by what we choose and commit to and desire that understanding ourselves as part of a body of people that perhaps we didn't completely choose, just we don't have much frame of reference for it. But part of our identity and part of the way we should see ourselves is a, as a member of God's people, the church. Again, we are a brother, sister, father, or mother to others. We have those people that are that to us. If this is your church, these are those people to you. If this is not your church, find a church to have those people. Secondly, commit to the disciple-making mission of the church you belong to. If God is accomplishing and fulfilling the Great Commission, by and large, through churches, commit to a church. Take some ownership. Take some responsibility for that process, both as being a disciple yourself and as helping others in being disciples. Hold leaders accountable to God's Word. Obey Jesus' great commission by both being a disciple and making disciples through the life of a local church. And then third, do not forget Jesus' heart for the church. There will be times, and you can probably all attest, 
when you wish you had a different family, when you wish your church family was not as it, as it is. There will be times when the hardships and the responsibilities and the, the pain, perhaps, of belonging to a church seem to outweigh the benefits. You will be disappointed by the lack of Christ-likeness in, in your fellow believers. You will be disappointed in the lack of grace that they show you when you lack Christ-likeness. Remember Jesus' heart for the church, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Remember that Christ even now is nourishing and cherishing the church. Um, in the one other place in, in the Gospels where Jesus uses the word church, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is building his church. He is making it lovely, attractive, and glorious, although it doesn't always seem so to us. And his mission will not fail. There are certainly times where it is right to be disappointed and frustrated with the church. But may that not be the dominant thought and feeling we have towards the church. Because Jesus, who is much more perfect in his priorities and his purity than us, continues to love the church, continues to commit to the church, walk with the church, nourish and cherish the church, and he will not leave or forsake the church. Let's pray.